Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to our first hydrology podcast. We're kicking off our inaugural podcast today with special guests. We have Dave and Christina here with us, and I'm going to hand it over to Christina first to just introduce who she is. Hi there. Um, my name is Christina Windsor. I'm business development manager uh, for Auto Hydromat. I have been in the industry um, for about 15 years. I uh, My background's in uh, biology, but also um, have uh, many, many years ago uh, did a master's in environmental science with a focus in hazardous waste remediation. Awesome. Thank you, Christina. Um, and I'll hand it over to Dave now to introduce himself. Thanks, Shopa. And thanks, Christina, to both of you for inviting me here. It's an honor to be part of the inaugural uh, podcast. Um, my name is Dave Colvin. I'm the groundwater team leader with LRE Water. We're a water resource consulting firm. Uh, we've got offices through the West and Midwest, and we cover lots of different water resource issues. My specialty is groundwater, and so we'll be talking a little more about that today. Um, I went to Syracuse University for geology and Colorado School of Mines for my master's and have been practicing for the past 25 years. So um, there's been an evolution in, in my work that I think is reflective of, of where the needs of the water world have gone. And that's gone more from supply and then getting lately into storage underground and those kinds of things. There are solutions to um, some of the issues we're going to be talking about today. So, um, yeah, back to you, Shilpa. Thank you. Yeah. The topic today is a very important and newsworthy one as well, as many of you have probably heard of these historic water events in the West and the Mid Midwest, um, certain droughts that are going on in areas like Texas. And um, there's this link between droughts and groundwater. And so I'm going to let Christina um, take it away with talking more about that link. Thanks, Shilpa. Um, well, first of all, um, Dave, thanks for um, speaking with us today. I know you're very busy solving the country's water issues, um, of which there are many right now. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your time. And yes, like Shilpa mentioned, um, we're really in an interesting situation with the drought in the West. Um, and it's slowly, you know, that, that drought that's slowly um, moving from state to state. Um, water and, and climate issues both have, have become really a big part of the public conversation almost on a daily basis. And um, for the first time in my experience and in my career, um, the general public has really taken an interest to the type of work that we do. So, um, Dave, before we jump into our topic for today of um, drought and, and the West, um, is there anything that you want to, um, to say about LRE water and the ways that the type of work that you're doing right now with the, with the drought and with um, the, the current water situation? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my team because, uh, you know, I feel like we've got an excellent group of experts that are really not only responsive to the, the water issues that are coming up these days, but really taking a proactive approach to using systems-based thinking and planning 
to to plan for the future instead of just having um, what oftentimes becomes a knee jerk reaction to drought situations like many of um, us are in this year. So you know we've got a team of uh, groundwater folks that are um, who I work most closely with, but we also have water information technology team that really gets towards the the big data of water and using publicly available data and, and integrate integrating that with site-specific information that our clients are providing and and really just providing people the the information they need to make decisions to manage their systems in the face of the challenges that, that we all have so um, we've got a lot of tech on on our team and we also get a lot get involved in a lot of water rights work which um, of course is you know it's got a historical basis but is is really how as a society we decide to deal with administration of water and so all of these things really come together in in what we're going to talk about today with how to how to uh, you know start approaching solutions to the conflict and and some of the natural um, reactions to the way we've been using water so um yeah, that's that's just a thumbnail sketch of LRE water. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. So interesting and so pertinent right now. Um, and then, you know, when we start looking at um, the topic of drought, um, a lot of people have said that we're we're entering into a mega drought. Um, I don't know if you use that that term normally, Dave, but um, it's you know it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting concept, and and people have said that. You know, if um, if you're in a drought for more than 20 years, that can be defined as a mega drought. What are your thoughts on that? And and do you believe, you know, do you believe in that concept? Well, you know, not being a, a climate scientist, I I'm, I'm usually kind of in the same boat as a lot of other people, and I had to do a little bit of research on this topic just to be able to discuss it in the context of what I do work in day to day. And so, you know, some of the things that struck me were that um, the U.S. drought monitor is currently estimating that 57 million people in the Western U.S. are, are living in some stage of drought. And so to your point about the, the public conversation and, you know, what people are hearing about in the news, that's a lot of people that are having this information thrown at them. And, you know, it comes sometimes from a place of not really understanding what drought means or, you know, this idea of a mega drought, it, it's, it, it makes sense to me. And, you know, looking at what that's defined as, I, I kind of had to think about some of the stresses that the nation has faced in the past that might be out of my memory, but a lot of people turn to the, the Dust Bowl and, and, you know, thinking about what the Dust Bowl, how it happened, what, what it was in terms of longevity and, and trying to relate that to, our current situation. And what I found was that, you know, depending on how you measure it, the Dust Bowl was about a 10-year event. And, um, you know, the research shows that it, it did have a human-induced component to it. And so, um, you know, that was that was a little more land management-based. And um, there were some what you might call, you know, climate responses in terms of sea surface temperature responses to what we were doing with with agricultural practices at the time that just created this positive feedback loop, um, positive in the sense that it it reinforced the direction of 
drying up, but um, certainly negative in terms of how it impacted humans. So, you know, in in a sense that what we're looking at now is is a mega drought, and that the researchers are are looking at all of the available information that that really dates back to the beginning of the industrial revolution. To me, it makes sense that you know that's that's really when humans started having a, a real impact on the earth. Yeah, and it's interesting you you bring up the environmental as well as the the human <coughs> impacts to those um, to the factors you know those factors that are affecting the drought right now. Um, what do you think is is um, really driving um, that drought? Well, and I, I think you know when it comes to folks that that might resist the idea of climate change or human contribution to what we're experiencing now, there, there's just so many variables out there that, you know, there are these natural patterns that that are changing and, and some of them happen on, you know, annual or decadal type timeframes. But, um, you know, some of them are, are more of a geologic timeframe. And, and so it's hard to differentiate all of those different natural mechanisms but it, it does seem that there is pretty common acceptance of the the human impact and and then it's you know the real struggle is to figure out what what we are contributing to and and how to change our behaviors to um address that and, and if at all possible reverse the direction of climate change particularly as it relates to um you know warming and and the impacts to the the hydrologic cycle. Um, so I, th- I think that's, you know, the real, the real struggle here is, is what can we do about it? But um, in terms of, you know, the, the human impact on, on climate change, I, I do think it's, it's, it's there. It's evident. Right. Right. And um, on another topic, I wanted to um, discuss what, you know, what is the impact of this extended drought or the mega drought on, on aquifers in the West? Um, you know, is, you know, is that, is that shifting our, our water availability? So, you know, I mean, the, the um, lack of surface water um, obviously pushes people to then draw, um, draw and rely more, more on their groundwater resources. Yeah, that, that's, you know, when we talk about groundwater to our clients and the benefits of groundwater, one of the, the first things we usually mention is that it's it's a great source of water supply during a drought year when surface water is unavailable or less available. And so, you know, just that, that natural turn towards a source that um, might otherwise be relatively untapped, I think is... is it's it's to be expected and it also is just another one of those forcing mechanisms on the problem itself because you know most of the water we pump from underground is connected to the surface water so the more we pump now there's a price to pay later at the surface water um, level and so we're just kind of exacerbating the, the problem by turning to groundwater and yet I, I do think that you know groundwater has a, a role there it's just a matter of managing it and and that's where a lot of our work lately has 
come down to manage the aquifer recharge or aquifer storage and recovery where in those years of plenty, when we have a wet season and there is surface water available, finding a way to store that underground so that it's there for us in a drought year and that we can more sustainably turn towards groundwater as a drought supply. So it it takes that level of management and planning that uh, is is just less reactive and more forward thinking. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the those are similar trends to what we're seeing in our business as well. Um, it is it is interesting, and it's um, you know certainly put um, a much larger focus on on groundwater. So in in monitoring and managing that groundwater, um, what are your thoughts in terms of um, the definition of drought? Um, how how do we you know are we talking about drought in the right way? And um, you know it, it seems like um, you know all of us and and the general public is in this um, kind of in the state of when is the drought going to be over? And is that really the right way to be talking about drought? Yeah, that that's a great question because um, it's it's one that really kind of comes up every time the drought conversation comes up because it, it has been coming up more and more often. And so, you know, what is it if, if, if we're in a drought every year, is that really a drought or is that something else? And so I, I did have to go back and review not only the definition of drought, but some of the more specific definitions and, you know, found um, uh, the different definitions being meteorological drought, where we're looking about, uh, we're looking at how much, precipitation is happening as either rain or snow. And, you know, on, on that angle, we know that particularly in places like California, there's been record low uh, snowpack certain years. And throughout the West, you know, the snow is um, in many places, that's one of our largest reservoirs and it's one of our supplies. So, you know, there the other types of drought, hydrological drought, where we're looking about the water flow, um, you know, that could have a delay. And so in some places where there's a good snowpack that gets you through one year and then, you know, the next year um, you might have good runoff, but then uh, in a subsequent year, um, you know, the runoff is affected and, and um, that's when you have drought at more of the, the user scale. Um, and then, you know, I think what a lot of people end up looking at is, is, agricultural or ecological drought where, you know, we're looking at the history of agriculture and how much we've been able to grow, say, over the last 30 years. And then if we feel like we don't have enough water to grow an equal amount uh, this year, then that becomes this this definition of drought. And and that has this real historic or historical uh, foundation to it. But Again, back to that idea, if, 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 we're, if we're talking about drought every year and we're waiting for that 30-year average to shift, um, you know, the, a lot of the conversation these days is starting to focus on aridification or a transition into a more permanent situation where there just is less water and that's, that's different than drought from a historical spe- perspective. It's, it's more about the new normal, you know, to put it in kind of common lingo that, that we're just going to have to live with in the future. And, and I think 
that that's a hard concept to get through to the public. So while it's 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 helpful as the old cliche goes to you know never let a good drought go unpublicized, um, <laughs> we we do want to you know maybe shift the conversation to this is just the way it is from you know as far as we can tell into the future. So what are we going to do about that? Right, right. Um, it's it's funny that you say that. I mean, I know there are states out there that have been um, managing limited water for for many many years, and um, you know, various states have done it in in various different ways. And um, a couple of examples and where we um, where we see a, where we provide a lot of support to our customers is one in California and the second in Texas. And I think those are both kind of interesting examples of. Um, you know, of states that have um, a lot of a lot of groundwater, um, a lot of groundwater issues, and a lot of groundwater management that's going on. Um, but they have both really um, handled that in very different ways. Um, what do you think are the main drivers for those differences, and and maybe some of the pros and cons for each each of those various methods? Yeah, I, I think you know Texas is is a great example of. Um, a couple of different extremes on how to manage uh, groundwater in particular. You know, on one hand, they've they've got very loose laws in terms of how much groundwater you can pump and recognizing the connection to surface water. And and so I think, you know, for a long time, groundwater was um, very loosely managed. And, and so there was a lot of reliance built on Groundwater, and so as the maybe some of the conflicts started to develop, or some of the you know aquifer mining that that became obvious um, to to the users of groundwater, Texas really developed what I think is a is a, a great system of evaluating their groundwater resources and then managing it in a way that empowers uh, kind of a grassroots approach while also having the state have a, a top-down influence on that. And what they've done is that they have a, a five-year planning cycle and, and they have the groundwater conservation districts, which are more at the local level, you know, kind of county or, or sometimes a little bigger um, scale. And they get the water users together and get their input on what they want to see for the aquifer that's underneath their feet in kind of the, you know, 40 to 60 year uh, planning horizon. And so they they come together and, and agree upon what they want to see for their aquifer. And then the state has created groundwater management areas, which are kind of the next scale up and um, a little more regional. And they start to compile all of this information into where do they want to go in the future as a region and then the state takes all of that information and puts it into the statewide water plan. But what the state has done that I think has been really helpful to this is that they have developed groundwater models that are based on just a plethora of data. Texas is very data rich. And of course, that only comes through you know, investigations and monitoring of water. And so they've got this great system of collecting the data organizing it so that they have tools and models and a common platform for analysis of the situation. And then they use that for decision-making. And then the communication is both ways. It, it goes from the 
the water users up to the state and also from the state back down to the water users. So in that sense, you know, they've been doing this for decades now and they have really shown success in, in managing some of the, the really challenging groundwater situations that they have. Um, and of course, you know, nothing's perfect, but they, they do have a great system. Yeah, it's very impressive, isn't it? Texas has a tremendous amount of data. Now, are they able to actually um, take that data and turn it into an actionable plan? Well, yeah, I think that the way Texas has done that is that the state themselves have uh, really invested in projects that compile vast amounts of data and put them into decision-making tools, and in some cases, models. And then those models are available for the water users to use in their decision-making and their planning for the future. And so they have created this cycle of data collection and putting that data into a usable format. And then the users are then able to, to rely on that for planning moving forward. And I know California California is maybe more in its infancy um, with with managing its groundwater. Um, what, have you do you have any experience in, in in California and kind of how it's structured and how they're they're working with some of the same issues? I, I don't do a lot of work in California, but it is certainly prevalent enough in in our industry that, uh, that you can draw a lot of parallels to other situations on one of those is the, the way that they manage groundwater or the way that it's, it's legally administered. And, and I, I think that, you know, from a foundation, they suffer from some of the, the same potential problems down in Texas in that they really don't have a legal administration system that restricts groundwater pumping in any way and that identifies the impacts. Now, they're, they're moving in that direction, direction in 2014. The Sigma came around that, or at least they started going in the direction of requiring plans, groundwater management plans that, that will start to address the impacts of groundwater pumping. And I, I think, you know, 2014 was, was right in the middle of a, a record drought in California. And so the timing was, unfortunate in the sense that there was already a water supply issue and coming out with groundwater regulation or, or, or saying that it's coming probably only accelerated the grab on groundwater. And so they, you know, really in, in people saw the, the writing on the wall, as it were, and, and did everything they could to get more wells in the ground and, and pump more water. And, and, you know, just to put some numbers on it there, in, in that time frame uh, from 2012 to 2016, uh, there's been various studies done that, that show that uh, California lost somewhere between eight and nine million acre feet of groundwater. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think about what that number means without giving it some context. And so being from Colorado, I, um, you know, went to look at what our water use is each year and, and we're at about 5 million acre feet of water. So, you know, nearly double our entire state's water use. And 
that's what they lost, you know, per year in that four year time frame. And that's just that's that's just baffling. And I know California is a bigger state and there's more water available there too. So it it just it, it was an interesting way to give it some context. And you know, when we think about Calif- or Colorado's water use and I threw out five million acre feet of consumption. The other interesting uh, component of that is that because we reuse water, which they also do in California, but um, here in Colorado, we, we consume 5 million acre feet of water, but there's about 15 million acre feet of use. And the way we accomplish that tripling of water supply is through water reuse. And that that isn't water reuse in the way that people may have heard about it recently where it's more of a planned thing. This is just the way that we administer water in Colorado is that after a single use, we have to return it to the river system. And so that allows downstream users to reuse that water, which is where we get this tripling. But that that also, I think, brings to mind just the different ways of administering water and you know, here in Colorado, it, it is um, one of the more strict environments for, for water administration. And, and that certainly has its benefits. Um, it also causes, you know, some, some conflict and, and issues that other states might not experience. But that's, that's just part of the prior appropriation water rights system, which is, you know, first in time, first in right is uh, really the way we, we manage it here. And that, that has gone a long way to um, maybe addressing some of these administration issues um, before they become hydrologic problems. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and you um, you mentioned a lot of really great points there, Dave. Um, first of all, I think we we learned recently during COVID how real the psychological uh, impacts of of demand are. Um, you know, with uh, you you mentioned the example of of California and kind of the grab on groundwater. And I think we all experienced that during COVID with the toilet paper situation. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, it's interesting that um, it, it really is true when you start limiting, um, limiting supply. Um, there's, there's definitely an impact there. Um, the other thing is, you know, we're, I'm, I'm here in Colorado also, as you know, so um, we've always been very proud of our, our water rights and those, um, you know, fairly, fairly detailed water rights. And so that's something that we, um, you know, I think that has helped us, um, of course, being upstream of, of, um, the water situation and being a, a large part of the source is, is also helpful for us. Um, we're, we're certainly, um, being impacted right now by this drought, but, um, at the same time, um, you know, I think we have some advantage being, being, you know, on the, the upper side of that. Um, yeah, we, in- we're what you call a headwater state. So, Yes. Water only flows out of Colorado. (laughs) Yes. Right. right. Yeah. We're we're a bit fortunate there. So one of the interesting things about Texas and this planning cycle that they go through is that not only are they collecting information and putting it into tools and models that can be used for analysis and planning, but that information gets back into the the day-to-day use of groundwater because the groundwater conservation districts can then take that information and, and put it into how they issue well permits 
footprints or if they have pumping limitations. And it really gives them the ability to have a data-informed administration of their groundwater. And so that's it's kind of a success story in terms of the flow of information and how it feeds back into day-to-day water use and improvements there. So Dave, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, I know there's lots of states, um, both on in the West in the Midwest and on the East coast, even that are doing a lot to, um, to manage their, um, their groundwater as well as surface water. Um, and, you know, we just talked about a couple examples there just because they're fairly unique. Um, what else do you think that that state and, lo- state and local governments should be doing to, to move um, to do as we are looking to move um, forward in this water crisis? Yeah, I, th- I think that the importance of monitoring the situation really, it comes up every time we have a project where we have an issue we're trying to deal with. And, uh, you know, one of the first things we turn to is is what was the situation before the issue arose and do we have information to really discern what might be causing this new situation so that's a very general statement but from a groundwater perspective you know a lot of times we're looking for what the groundwater levels were before humans even started drilling wells and pumping groundwater and so we have this the fog of history that we're trying to fight through and and we use all of these analogs in terms of trying to recreate what the world looked like before we impacted it. And so, you know, in thinking about moving into the future, kind of the old adage of planting a tree, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago or today. And, you know, that's kind of the same way with data, which is um, we prefer to be able to look back on actual measurements in the past, but a lot of times that's not available when we scramble to start collecting data today. So when we get into a, a situation where we have the ability to start collecting meaningful data, we love to do it. And so there's you know today's world of instrumentation and, and metering and, again, the, the big data of of water data out there that we can rely on, it's great to deploy all those sensors and start collecting the data in very meaningful places and valuable places, and then having that information in the future. And a lot of this is getting cooked into rules and regulations for some of the solutions we're looking at, like uh, aquifer storage and recovery. You know, there's, there's now this requirement um, to do a baseline characterization before you start that so that you understand what the system looked like before you start changing it. And I think that that is, that is really the, the, the start of it all in terms of combining monitoring with management and, and really leveraging the data that we can collect out in the world these days. We certainly see that um, more and more interest from from our customers in being more proactive um, and not just reactive. So you know when you when you've got a crisis, um, you know you you have to monitor and you have to manage that resource 
Um, but there are certainly more and more people that are looking at, you know, how can we be proactive and how can we, um, you know, capture this data, understand, um, understand what is happening in our, in our systems, um, upfront. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting, um, situation and, and something that I think is makes me feel hopeful that we're, you know, that we're taking the right steps. So when I see people, you know, really wanting to, to understand those systems up front. Um, aquifer storage and recovery is another one that you mentioned. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, traditional reservoirs that are on um, over land, um, I think they they tend to have a lot of um, losses due to evaporation. And um, so, you know, in a way, it's it's a nice, um, you know, the, the underground and um, aquifers are, you know, used for reservoirs. And, and that's definitely a good, a good alternative there. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's, you know, there's um, some other benefits that that sometimes aren't aren't totally clear at the outset, but become clear as we start planning these projects. And one of them is that, you know, at the surface water reservoir, you've got to invest hundreds of millions, if not more billions sometimes to to store a single drop of water where a lot of ASR systems are feasible in the sense that you can drill one well and start putting water into it and recover it at some later date. And it might not be very much water, but you're, you're getting the benefit of storage right from the get-go, even, even in you know, pilot phase operations, you're actually storing water. And so um, I think there's some comfort in that in reducing those huge capital costs that come with uh, the investment in a surface water reservoir. But that being said, you know, the, some of the difficulty with groundwater systems is that it's dark down there. We can't see the mm-hmm. subsurface. So, uh, you right. know, we, we need help there. And, and that's where, you know, in the past we've, we've done a lot of drilling and hand measurements of, of water levels and those kinds of things. But, you know, looking at some of the systems that OTT Hydromet has, um, you know, automating that data collection is becoming more and more a necessity and, and not just a nice to have type of system because the the ability to you know put a data logger down into a well and watch those water levels change over minutes um, rather than you know the time it takes us to make a hand measurement that's that's really um, powerful and and useful to how we end up um, planning these projects and really it leads to more successful projects. And so to the extent possible, we've been automating that data collection and, and, you know, just kind of carrying on with, with that theme of automation. We've also gone that direction with data analysis and there's, you know, a lot of programming and, and a lot of, um, ways to automate the data management and analysis so that we can very quickly take large amounts of data and get it into a format that informs basically real-time decision-making. And that I think is something that we as a society are fortunate to be in a place where we can, you know, rely on those types of systems. Absolutely. Yep. You're absolutely right. There are so many tools available to us today, um, you know, both on the data ma- data management side, but also data collection and um, real time. And if not real time, near real time to to allow us to collect all of that 
um, very valuable information and make those decisions. Um, and, and so many of our customers are, 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 are having to do that, um, you know, because they're, they're reliant on that water, um, you know, whether it's for, for agriculture or for their uh, municipal uses. So um, very, very important um, and valuable to them. So Dave, I, I just want to thank you very much for your time today. Um, really, really great conversation. Um, anything else that, that you wanted to touch on before we um, sign off today? No, no, I just wanted to likewise thank you for having me. And uh, I hope that um, I know that I've enjoyed this conversation and hopefully others find it useful and informative and uh, absolutely. look forward to doing it again sometime in the future. Yep, absolutely. You too, Dave. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say thank you, Christina and Dave, for joining us for this conversation today and helping us kick off our inaugural podcast for Hydrology. Um, this was a wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate both of you joining today. Thank, thank you, you so much. I really appreciate it. Let's talk about the Weber.